reading of God's word this morning is out of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 809. This is God's word. Please listen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command those stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what you reveal within. You yourself uh, are the word. And that it is Christ that we read in the pages of your scriptures. We thank you for this particular passage. And pray now uh, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would change us. uh, That your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, would change change us now, uh, that we would know you more in this time, uh, that we would come to trust you more as the one who has prevailed over the tempter and has conquered sin on our behalf. We thank you and praise you and ask that your spirit would be our teacher now. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray, amen. Well, our text this morning uh, may be quite familiar to many of you. It's set in the context as the last recorded event preceding Christ's public ministry. Last week, we celebrated the birth of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, taking on flesh and becoming man. Now, we don't read any more about Jesus' life after his birth in Matthew's gospel until he's baptized by John the Baptist in the preceding chapter. And then this narrative, immediately following Jesus' baptism, is Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, frequently, the point of this passage is taken to be the example given by Jesus as to how we are to respond to temptation. It would go something like this. Jesus responds to the temptation of the devil by by using the Word of God. Therefore, we should respond to temptation by using the Word of God. And it's kind of like, that's it, period, end of story. And it's tempting to think that that is all this passage has to offer. 
at least in the most practical sense. And I don't want to downplay the importance of such an observation. In fact, we'll discuss that later on. But we can't do justice to this text if that's all we look at. As with every word and action of Jesus that we read about in the Bible, we must be careful not to merely take him to be an example that we are to emulate. If we read the gospel solely as an account of an example for imitation, if we read them as only speaking to our behavior, then I would suggest that we've missed the entire point. And infinitely more serious, we've missed Christ. There are huge elements in the Gospels that are unique to Christ. And so what I want to do this morning with this passage is focus on the unique importance of Christ's work with particular reference to the theme of wilderness. And verse 1 says that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And from the perspective of the whole of Scripture, wilderness is a very important idea. It's one of the ways the Bible describes the world from the fall all the way to glory. And wilderness can only be used in reference to an imperfect world. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Bible only describes one section of history as wilderness. If we look at the whole of history as capped on one end by the creation, by the time in paradise, in glory, I'm sorry, in in creation, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, and then capped on the other end by glory, In Revelation 21 and 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, the last two chapters of the Bible, then everything in between could and should be described as wilderness. We'll trace that wilderness theme, which is prominent in this passage in Matthew. And I want to look at three points in particular about this passage. One, Israel in the wilderness. Two, Jesus in the wilderness. And three, our life in the wilderness. So first, Israel in the wilderness. Now, we don't see the word Israel in this passage, but it's virtually impossible to read it without acknowledging the heavy allusions to the Old Testament by Matthew. And this isn't really that surprising because Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. So his original readers would have been very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew makes use of those scriptures then throughout to show that Jesus is Messiah He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So what is characteristic of Israel in the wilderness? Or we could ask it in this way, in what way did Israel experience the wilderness? Well, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus describe a time in Israel's history when they were held in slavery by Pharaoh in Egypt. And they were eventually set free by Pharaoh after the Lord had stricken the Egyptians with ten plagues. The Lord then parted the Red Sea for them to pass through before the pursuing Egyptians could catch them and in the process dealt the decisive blow to the Egyptian army by completely and utterly destroying them. And what followed that event was the beginning of Israel's time in the wilderness. Jeanette and I spent most of last week uh, with our family in Kansas City, where we're both from. We were there for Christmas. Returned on Wednesday which, as you most know, uh, was just a couple of days after the brush fires had taken their toll on a good bit of land through southern Oklahoma and north Texas. And the fires were so bad in some areas that I-35 was actually closed in a couple of areas. Well, after they were reopened, I drove through those spots and was able to see what had happened. And the fire had completely scorched the land in these areas. 
And one place in particular, it's called Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, uh, there was no grass to be seen. There was still smoke coming up from the west. It was scorched brown everywhere that you looked. All the living grass and brush that was in its path was dead. And this really was not unlike the land that the Israelites faced. There was no real vegetation or natural source of food or water that could provide for the close to two million Israelites that were wandering. They needed food and water and would not find it in this natural desert climate. So facing these conditions, the Israelites immediately began with a series of complaints to Moses. They complained first about the lack of good drinking water. Later, they began crying out for food. And each time they complained, the Lord heard their grumbling and provided for them. He turned bitter water into water suitable for drinking in Exodus 15 and provided bread from heaven called manna in Exodus 16. So in each case, the Lord was faithful in providing for his people. But we shouldn't forget the context here either. Israel's complaining began almost immediately following the parting of the Red Sea by the Lord. They had finally been delivered from the oppressive slavery of Egypt. And what is the first thing they do after leaving the Red Sea? They begin to complain. They've just seen the Lord rescue them, according to his promise, from the hands of the greatest and most powerful army of the world at that time. And yet they immediately begin grumbling. I would ask, what does that say about the human heart? What does this say about our natural inclination toward the goodness of God? But this is still not the ultimate failure of Israel in the wilderness. That came as they approached Canaan, which was the promised land. They sent spies ahead to scope out the landscape. And after 40 days, the spies returned with a frightening report of the great strength of the people and the cities that were inhabiting Canaan at that time. So what did the people decide to do? Well, maybe trust in the Lord that he would safely deliver them into the land that he had promised. Unfortunately, not the pattern of Israel's distrust in the Lord continued and they then refused to enter the promised land. This was to be the greatest place to live. The Bible says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. The land was everything that the arid desert they had been wandering in wasn't. And yet they refused to enter. So in response to Israel's rejection of the land, God grants their request. He sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, one year for every day that they had spied the land. That generation of Israelites would not see the promised land. Instead, they would perish in the wilderness. So Israel's time in the wilderness was fundamentally a time of testing. And now the Lord had given them every reason to trust him. He defeated Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. He provided food and water for them in a place where there wasn't any. And then even after their refusal to enter the promised land, he sustained his people for 40 years in their wandering. Yet throughout the wandering years in the wilderness, Israel questioned, complained and grumbled against God. As a result, that generation perished in the wilderness without inhabiting the promised land. So although Israel had every reason to trust God, they still failed to do so. But this isn't the end of the wilderness theme in the Bible. It doesn't stop with Israel. We actually see it again in Jesus' experience in the wilderness. What is the connection then between Israel and the wilderness and Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus? 
Well, remember, Matthew's writing his gospel to a bunch of first century Jews. One of the primary purposes is to show that Jesus is Messiah. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the true Israel. So there's a direct parallel then in many instances in the events of Jesus' life to the events of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And this isn't just the creative work of Matthew as he writes. This isn't just something, a trick of the pen that he's doing. God ordained these events and experiences of the nation of Israel in order that they would show the coming of Messiah. They would be pointing to Jesus. This is the primary connection, and this is how we should view the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. But even prior to the actual temptation, we see Jesus being likened to Israel. In Matthew 2, just a couple chapters back, in verses 19 through 21, an angel of the Lord appears in Joseph's dream, telling him to take the baby Jesus out of Egypt and into Israel. They had fled there, fleeing, uh, fleeing Herod. And right here already we see a clear parallel to the Israelites being freed from the captivity of Egypt in Exodus 12. In both cases, Israel and Jesus are coming out of Egypt. Similarly, Jesus later went into the wilderness as Israel did. In fact, verse 1 says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we shouldn't miss that point. It was the very Spirit of God that led Jesus into the wilderness. It was the Father's will that Jesus be tempted in this way at this time. We can already see that there's a difference in the way that Jesus approached His time in the wilderness. Remember, Israel went grumbling and complaining. But Jesus, on the other hand, goes willingly, always seeking to be obedient to His Father in every way. So Jesus is constantly trusting in the Father's will. In fact, we could say that he really knows no other way to live. And continuing in verse 2, we see that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And commentators differ as to the exact purpose of this fasting immediately prior to his temptation. Uh, But there are at least three things, I think, of which we can be sure. One, this time of fasting definitely points back to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. And remember his audience here, because of their familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures, his Jewish hearers would perk up when they heard the number 40. That would be something that they clearly heard. And Israel's 40 years spent wandering in the wilderness would certainly come to mind. And secondly, this fast of 40 days and 40 nights was the time that God in his sovereignty decided upon. And now remember that Jesus as the true Israel was seeking complete faithfulness and obedience to his Father's will. And this is apparent even in the time of his fasting. And finally, three, something very practical. The result of Jesus' fast was that he was hungry, as verse 2 says. Jesus, as a real human being with a real human body, was hungry and no doubt genuinely desired food. So again, there's tremendous significance in Jesus' fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So even after only these first two verses of chapter 4, Matthew's Jewish hearers would see this connection and then would probably be on the edge of their seats wanting to see how Jesus fared in the wilderness, to see how that compared to what they knew Israel's experience in the wilderness to be. Look again with me at verse 3. Satan begins by saying, If you are the Son of God. Not in the sense that he's questioning whether Jesus really is the Son of God, He does know that, 
but more along the lines of since you are the son of God or because you are the son of God. So by appealing to his authority as the son of God, Satan is saying you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. I know you have the power to do this. Why don't you just go ahead and make these stones into loaves of bread and eat? So Satan's temptation is subtle here. It's not questioning the ability of Jesus to perform this miracle. He knows Jesus is capable of it. Satan's temptation is rather for Jesus to use his power and authority inappropriately. For Jesus to turn stones to loaves of bread would mean that he's no longer trusting the Father and instead is taking the situation into his own hands. And we see this in his response. Uh, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was to trust not in his own ability to change the situation, but in the providence of his Father. And this is really the case in all three temptations. They each have a unique appeal, physical drives, pride, and possessions, respectively. But the common theme is that Jesus was faced with the opportunity to inappropriately use his power and authority. He could either deny himself to obey his Father, or he could selfishly seek his own good apart from the Father. But as we've already seen, Jesus was concerned only with doing the will of his Father. As the perfect Son, he was obedient in all that he did. He came to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, says Paul. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And notice the stark contrast here between the attitude of Jesus and the attitude of Israel. Israel responded in the exact opposite way from Jesus. Instead of seeking to be faithful to the God who had been so faithful to them, they focused completely on themselves. Their only agenda was that their personal needs and desires be met. And we would be remiss if we didn't look at the manner in which Jesus responds to each temptation. In each case, he uses scripture. And even more, he uses scripture that has reference to Israel in the wilderness. The Son of God, who has all power and authority, chooses to respond to Satan with what? You might expect great signs and wonders, maybe casting Satan down violently for all to see. But this isn't the case. He responds instead with the word of God. And the temptation here is to say, well, for some reason unknown to us, Jesus decided not to exercise his authority as he really could have. Instead of Satan with real power, he just decided to quote some scripture. But I would say this is the absolute wrong way of looking at it. This was not Jesus choosing against exercising real power. Rather, it was Jesus exercising and implementing the greatest of authority. By speaking the word of God, he was bringing the very power to God to bear in this situation. And I would ask us all, myself included, do we have this kind of confidence in the word of God? Do we face difficult circumstances and dependence and reliance on the scriptures? Or do we secretly wish for some seemingly greater, more powerful, showier response? Jesus responded with the utmost authority and strength. He didn't compromise in the least. And what did that look like? It was quoting Scripture. At the end of Jesus' time in the wilderness, we see in verses 10 and 11 that Satan leaves Jesus. 
And Jesus comes forth as the conqueror in the wilderness. He was a faithful son to a father throughout. He was obedient where Israel was not. But what did that accomplish? Why is Jesus' victory so significant? Well, Jesus overcame all temptation in order to be presented as the pure and spotless sacrificial lamb. It was his triumph over genuine temptation. This was genuine temptation for Jesus. It was triumph over that that made his death on the cross effective for sinners like you and me. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' obedience in the wilderness and throughout the entire course of his life was necessary for him to be our Savior. By succeeding where Israel failed, Jesus showed himself to be Messiah, the one who would eventually die to redeem his people. So we've seen how Israel failed in the wilderness and how Jesus then succeeded in the wilderness. But we should look now at how this affects our life in the wilderness. We stand in a unique position now being on this side of the cross and yet still in the wilderness. We have one who's gone before us to be tested and tempted and who came forth victorious. But that doesn't mean that we are now out of the wilderness. Though Christ succeeded in the wilderness, we will not be completely free from it until he returns again. In the meantime, the wilderness remains a place of tempting and testing. Now, our circumstances are obviously different from those of Israel and Jesus, but the common theme is the issue of trusting God in the midst of difficult circumstances. The wilderness is a place of suffering. And we're all familiar with suffering of some sort. I would ask you to think about what it looks like in your own life. Maybe a family member has been recently diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you're having a difficult time making friends at a new school. Maybe your marriage is strained and it feels like all you do with your spouse is fight. We all face suffering to some degree and in some way, even if it's as small as just making a sacrifice for the good of another. I'll say that this is really reality of life in the wilderness. The question, though, isn't so much what is the suffering. The question is, how do we respond to it? Do we automatically begin down the road of self-pity? Do we lash out in anger, maybe? Or maybe we actually calmly trust the Lord in this situation. One thing is for sure, and that's that the way we respond to suffering in the wilderness shows us much about our hearts. Ed Welch, in his book on depression, writes, While prosperity allows us to hide, hardships peel off masks we didn't even know we were wearing. During the bitter times, we can be happy, unafraid, confident, and optimistic. But the lean years reveal the best and the worst in us. Suffering provides an opportunity to become aware of where our confidence and hope really lies. It digs deep and exposes the inner recesses of the heart, exposing things about ourselves that we wouldn't know otherwise. But the Bible doesn't stop there, though. We're not left with suffering solely for the purpose of exposing our deep-rooted problems. No, it's in those times, our trials, our failures, even our misery, 
that we turn helplessly and dependently to Christ, who really is the only one who can change us. This is the same Christ who prevailed in the wilderness against temptation. And by becoming aware of these heart issues, we can better confront them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, James even calls us to count it all joy when we suffer and face trials. And Welch has another quote that puts this so well. He writes, joy and suffering are wedded together. Joy and suffering are wedded together. We could ask, how can he say this? How can he really say in in honesty that there is joy in the midst of suffering? Well, the primary reason is that we know that our suffering is not without purpose. We can be joyful because we know that there's a glorious and redemptive purpose in all our trials and hardships. Jesus, who is the perfectly obedient son of God, died for our disobedience. His very life was given to bring us to God. It is this hope, this surety that we can cling to in the midst of suffering. God has promised to work all things for your good if you're in Christ. That's his promise to you. And it's in suffering that we learn how to trust those promises. You can be confident that the difficult, seemingly impossible situation that you're facing at home or at school or at work has a glorious end in mind. And that end is knowing Christ better. Why would we now fail to trust in the promises of God and commit the same sin that Israel did? We have even greater reason than Israel did to trust in His goodness. And obviously the greatest being that He sent His own Son to die for our unfaithfulness. May we not make the same mistake that Israel did. Contrary to much of what you see on TV, Christianity is not a religion of health and wealth. The Lord Jesus does not promise a life free of trials and difficult situations. In fact, he calls us to expect trials and tribulations. He calls us to expect persecution. He even calls us to expect to be hated by the world. But in his Sermon on the Mount, he calls those who are persecuted for our sake, for his sake, blessed. It's in those times that we identify more with our Savior who was Himself the suffering servant. There's hope and there's joy in the midst of suffering. And this joy is not solely in the prospect of immediate change. It also has in view the ultimate hope that every believer possesses. That this world is not our final resting place. There will be an end to all suffering. There will be an end to our time in the wilderness. John writes of this time in Revelation 21. He says in verses 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Well, today is New Year's Day, which means that tomorrow morning, gyms and health clubs across America will be more crowded than usual. Millions of people will begin some kind of weight loss program this week. And many Christians will begin a schedule of prayer and some kind of Bible reading in an effort to be more consistent in their time spent with the Lord. 
So these are all pretty common New Year's resolutions. In fact, they may be your New Year's resolutions. One resolution you don't hear very often is this year I'm going to seek to find joy in the midst of suffering rather than just running from it. Or this year I'm going to resolve to suffer better. But maybe this type of thinking isn't too far off. God's allowance of suffering in our lives is not without purpose. The wilderness for us is a place of suffering and temptation, but it's also a place of great hope. It's with confidence in the perfect obedience of the Son of God that we look to our living hope that is being guarded by God Himself. What is the hope of your life? Where do you turn in the midst of suffering? And if it's not Christ, then what is it? I'd ask you to honestly think about how you would answer that question. Is it lasting? Is it guaranteed? Is it a hope that changes the way that you live today? Is it really hope at all? I would encourage you, embrace this Savior. Flee to Him. Run to the One who conquered the wilderness and promised ultimate deliverance from the wilderness for all that come to Him. He died in order that those who trust in Him wouldn't have to. I beg you, don't bypass this promised hope and choose instead to perish in the wilderness. How unfortunate that would be. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank You that we read in Your Word about how You did indeed conquer the wilderness. You are our Savior and our Redeemer. That You died on behalf of sinners like us uh, to call us to Yourself that we would be in right relationship with You. And we thank You and praise You for that. We pray that we would seek to suffer in a way that seeks to know You rather than just trying to flee from the situation. Lord, help us look to the hope and the joy that is there, as Your Word says, in these trials and tribulations. We thank You that by the power of Your Spirit, You will do that in us. You've promised to change us. You've promised to make us more into the image of the One who was victorious in the wilderness. We thank You and pray that You will do these things. In Christ's name, Amen.